1: Welcome everybody to a very special episode of The Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 522 for the week of Monday, July 10th, 2013. Now, what makes this episode very special, you ask? Well, I, Sawyer Rosenstein, won't be telling you. What I will do at this point is hand it over to Mark Ratterman because we've heard from people who have flown on the Space Shuttle. Last week, you heard from people who worked on the Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit. What about the people that actually worked on the shuttle? Here's Mark Ratterman to take it away with our special guest.
0: We've got something special for you talking space listeners. This is going to be a surprise because my guest that I'll be talking with for the next bit here is somebody that, well, i, I got to say some buddies because he and his wife are instrumental, I think, to many people having uh, that increased focus that started at some point for all of us with the space program. And it's having that personal connection with Andy and Jen Shearer, also known as Apache Man and Flying Jenny. Well, Andy's on with us today, and he's certainly made a difference for a lot of us, and it's a treat to get to talk with you, because frankly, most of the time, Andy, we hardly get to say more than hello and how you doing. So uh, welcome to Talking Space, and thanks for coming on with us.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for that intro. I hope to live up to your uh, up to that here, try to uh, answer as much as I can
0: answer, and, and- give back as much as I can give, and hopefully everybody uh, enjoys the show. Well, that's kind of a hallmark for you and Jen, is the fact that y'all have been giving to people and sharing, and you know, some of it's on the SPACE program, but a lot of it's just uh, people that are uh, excited to know somebody that's there, that's, that's seen things that a lot of us only get a glimpse of, but I was thinking today that we'll be talking about the past to some extent, what's going on today. And the future, but first of all, I've got to say congratulations to you and Jen with your very own space baby, your daughter Farah. Congratulations!
2: Well, thank you very much, Mark. I, it's a lot of things change over the years, but and you think you know how you react when uh, your firstborn child is born, but nothing compares. Everyone always says that, but you never really know it till it happens. So yeah, it's a it's a big moment for us. Big thing.
0: To everybody that's listening to us, be patient. I promise we're going to talk about the Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit. It'll be a little bit later on in our discussion. But first, Andy, I remember from day one seeing your Twitter ID, Apache Man. Where did that come from? How did you? Where Where is that? Is that a connection with some previous uh, time in your life, or what? What's up?
2: It is. Um, I right out of high school, I joined the army, and. I started out as a uh, Cobra helicopter uh, crew chief for the first 2 years but they were phasing those out and sending them all to the active reserves at the time. So I transitioned, I stayed with I had the opportunity to go with several different helicopters but at the time, you know, I liked guns. So I stayed with the attack helicopter and I changed to the uh, to be an Apache crew chief where I was for the Rex the rest of the time I was in the Army, the next four years. So, and that kind of stuck with me. I mean, I've got a picture somewhere with my name on the side of the aircraft, and you know, you traveled around the world, those things, and lived in the desert with them. It's kind of part of who I am, it's just, you know, I didn't realize how much the military did for me while I was in, until I got out, you can look back on it and think, you know, what that really made a difference in my life. But that's where it comes from, is I was a Chikuchi for over four years and I really love him and I still would love to go see him fly again.
0: You know, I've said this on the show, I like airplanes. If I see something flying, I just got to turn and look and see what is it? What's it doing? Uh, and and that's, that's exciting stuff. So, interesting yeah, that that's thing. where you got your start.
2: Yeah, I do the same thing. We live by a small airport here in Merritt Island and it's just small planes and I don't know a lot about Small, you know, civil aviation kind of thing. But I always look to see because you have the Air Force base here, too. And you never know what's going to fly over here. So I'm always the same thing. If I hear something flying, if I can, I always go out of the garage and look or peek out a window, see if I can
0: see what it is. Currently, are you an aerospace uh, tech or? Yeah, like
2: the technical definition for our job title is is Launch Pad Technician. I'm working with SpaceX out here at Cape Canaveral.
0: Okay, and out of the army where did you uh did you continue and and work with with aircraft or something else?
2: I did but I went moved to uh I was in Savannah, Georgia at Hunter Army Airfield, and when I got out of the army and after that, I got a job working for Cessna at their factory at Wichita Kansas moved out there was there not very long. I see there a year, actually, but it was a significant year because six months after I got there is when I met Jen. She had just moved there, so how about that? That was a big was a big deal. We worked uh, what they called pre or pre delivery or green flight. It's when the airplane came out of the factory and it was done, but before it had flown, before it had any fuel put on it before anything. It was brand new. There was nothing going. It hadn't been started yet. And we got to, you know, start the airplane for the first time, do all the first checks, do all that stuff. And you really learn about it. I'd never worked on fixed-wing airplane aircraft before. So, that was a big deal for me. I was, I had to learn a lot in a short period of time. Because this was, I was used to wings that twirled around. I didn't know what this was. This was a... <laughs> You know, this was a small jet airplane. But it was really <laughs> neat. I learned a lot of stuff, and it was it was a neat place.
0: Well, it had to have been a stepping stone. Uh, of course, uh, that was when you met Jen, you said, but also did you didn't go straight from that to working with a space program by chance.
2: I did, actually.
0: Really? Uh, wow.
2: A friend of mine that I was in the military with um, called me up and said, hey, they're, they're hiring. He lived in here. He grew up in Coco down here. And he'd move back down here to Orlando, and he'd give me a call one day. He said, "Hey, there, did a bunch of hiring out to the Cape. You should put your your application in." Like, well, okay. I'd always wanted a you know space shuttle. Of course, I could. I had little toys when I was growing up, and that was it was always a big deal. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to do you know all that kind of stuff, and that'd be really neat. So, filled the application out. You know, a couple months later, had a couple interviews over the phone. They flew me out here for an interview and offered me a job. So basically I was in Wichita for a year, and then we moved back. Jen and I both moved back
0: down here, and uh, I've been working there ever since. How long ago was that when you moved to uh, Florida for that job? Uh, that was summer of 2000, almost exactly – what, 13 years ago, because I started July 3rd, 2000. That seems almost like an eternity for what's happened the last uh, four or five years.
2: Yeah, it's a long, it's, it's really a long time ago, but...
0: And you probably thought you were pretty fortunate for that job, at least that's uh, the way a lot of folks would think today. I felt I was fortunate just to get the interview, just to
2: just to be able, when they flew me down for the interview, I got... a. Uh, Drive out to the pad, you know, driving to the VAB for the first time in your own car, you know, seeing it come up on the horizon, you know, getting badges, going out to the pad. You know, after the interview, the short interview was over with, the guy giving me the interview, took me onto the pad. I I believe Atlantis was on the pad. I'm not positive anymore. I think, but I think Atlantis might be on the pad, pad A at the time, and took me on the tower, you know. I got to walk around and be standing right next to the space shuttle. I was happy for that. Even if I hadn't gotten a job at all. I was thrilled just to have gotten to be that close. I'm very happy and very proud to have worked on the shuttle program, but just to have gotten the interview was a was a big
0: deal to me. That's pretty cool. What kind of work did you do from two thousand to later years? Tell me about that. Well, I started working on Pad B. I worked with Pads whole Twelve years I was there.
2: Um, I was in the uh, what they call the PRSD shop, the, the Power Reactant Storage and Distribution, which is basically the, uh, the fuel cell system on the orbiter, um, and specifically the ground support equipment that serviced that, that loaded the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen onto the orbiter um, right before launch uh, for the fuel cells. So they, the shuttle would have electric power, water, while they're in orbit.
0: That's kind of hard to grasp because I think a lot of people understand that those systems are on board the orbiter, but actually uh, having an idea of making the transition from, uh, from working for Cessna to working out at the pad and, and being involved with that, was there uh, a, lot of, a lot of new things you had to learn? How did you, how did you start with that?
2: Almost everything was new. I mean, almost everything was new. I never worked with any kind of cryogenic clicker before. Never worked with any of this kind of scale before. The complexity is amazing. It's hard to describe, but it's what it is. It's, there's so many parts to launching a space shuttle. All the whole loop, you know, from landing to processing to launching it again. And our part was was no small piece. It was complicated too, but it was only a a small little chunk of what had to happen. They talked acronyms out there. You you had to learn a whole new language almost to understand what everyone was saying. And then it took, I remember weeks to even learn my way around the lost tower because there's so many twists and turns and so many different, it was so big. And then when it would rotate around the orbiter, All the access points from the fixed service structure to the rotating structure were different. So you had to learn a new way. And then everyone talked in levels. I'm going to the 155-foot level or the 75-foot level. Well, until you're actually up there and and have been to those places and really get familiar with that, it doesn't mean anything to you. You don't have any idea where you're going. Uh, So I had to learn a lot of stuff. In a short period of time, and they say the first six months of it, you're hardly, you're hardly able to do anything because you're trying to learn how things work, how people talk, where things are, all the different processes that are in place to make sure that, you know, things happen safely and you don't lose tools, for say, or there's just so many parts to it all. It's really, it's really amazing how it all comes together when you watch a launch.
0: Yeah, and I guess that uh, the activity level probably ramped up whenever a shuttle came out to the pad, whenever they had a rollout. That was when uh, kind of the start of uh, the intense times, right?
2: Yeah, there was always a joke that that went around that everyone thought that no one worked at the pad when there was no shuttle there, you know, because there was a lot of people that come out there only because the vehicle was there. And there were people there, you know, Every week, all week, all the time. That we lived there. But it was always a kind of running joke that, you know, oh, there's people out there. Oh, something's going on out there. You know, when there wasn't a vehicle there. But, yeah, the first day when it come, that was, those first two days were really busy. And it got down to being the first day we had packed it all in the first day. From all the umbilical connections to the MLP, all electrical connections, um, the water for the the water pipes, the say the safety showers, say the we had to hook up hoses for the freon cooling that kept the orbiter cool. There were so many things that had to go on right away. Once the RSS rotated around, it was a whole nother wave, which usually happened. I'm going to say anywhere from four to six hours after MLP was what they called hard down on the pedestals and it was the uh, crawler was no longer supporting it. So we had a lot of work to do, not just getting our our systems hooked up so that all the checks could be run. I mean, every system was checked every time the over got to the pad, everything was going through to make sure everything's working perfectly every single time. So there was a lot going on in the first two days or three days after the shuttle got to the pad.
0: I mean, everything had to be done so that we knew where we were at and what still so had to had to go on yet. Did you ever have a time when a shuttle was coming out to the pad and you knew that that intense uh, time, period of activity was about to start where you couldn't get to work? Maybe you were sick or something happened and, and you weren't uh, – Out there on the pad, did that ever happen to you?
2: Not that I can remember, although it didn't get to the pad, you know, same time of day all the time. So you may or may not be doing most of that work. Uh, It may have got out there. They like to roll it out at night, so it because they didn't want the orbit to heat up too much in the sunshine of the day. So they roll out at night a lot of times. So by, you know, early morning, we'd come in. Usually if I was on the first shift, we'd come in at at like 3 in the morning and be ready by, you know, 4 or 5 o'clock. It'd be on the pad, and we could go ahead and start what we're doing. But you know how it goes. Things don't always work exactly as planned, especially at KSC. And sometimes it wouldn't get there at all. It'd get there right before we went home or right after we left. You know, and second shift had to do all that stuff. And so when you come back in in the morning... You know, the majority of it would already be done. So I don't remember a time when I was particularly remember when I was sick or I, I wasn't there for whatever reason when it was on our shift, but it didn't always happen that way. So it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. We had more shifts and plenty of people and it was I hate to say it was routine but it was. After you do go through that whole flow so many times. You just know what to do, and, okay, that's what's going on. I don't want to say it loses importance, but anything you do repeatedly becomes more familiar to you.
0: Sure. It's another day at the office, and you think, okay, I'm going to work tomorrow. What have I got ahead? What uh, What are the tasks that I'm going to be working on? hmm As I'm trying to recall the details, it seems like uh, you changed, your job changed before the uh the last launch am i right uh, or have i got my time frame mixed up
2: it was right after it was right after um we really toward the end in the last launch there there were not a lot of people left i mean there were a lot of people left but the individual shops had dwindled with the previous layoffs um, you know, you're voluntary involuntary. voluntary to that point. Most of the layouts had been voluntary. There were a few involuntaries, but a lot of them had been voluntary. So, but the, the amount of personnel in the shops had dwindled. So there really was not an opportunity for anyone to really move anywhere, nor did we really want to, it was the end. And most everyone thought we were going to be laid off right after the last show launch anyway. So it didn't really make a difference, you know, what you were doing. Um, but my job changed right after, not right after, I guess the, the, it was in September, August, September of 2011, about a month or so afterwards when we started getting to the, uh, what they call transition retirement of the facilities from shuttle to, you know, whatever they were going to be or just closing them down as, as the case was in most of the facilities. I volunteered to be a part of that. It would it went along with my schooling. I just finished a project management degree the year before. This was the perfect opportunity for me to get some experience and, you know, help out and, and something different to do rather than just be up on the pad tearing things apart. You know, that was when I watched pad B be torn down that was hard enough that's where I started you know pad A I knew things were going to happen there but I wanted to be part of something a little bit different hopefully I would be part of something you know that would follow on later on and make sure things things went smoothly and I knew where everything was at I knew what had to be done how it had to be done and I was familiar with all the areas which not everyone was that was coming in to do this transition retirement work so it was a good
0: fit for me at that point. Thinking about Jen left her job prior to that or, or thereabouts, uh, can you talk to some of what went on for her with, with the work that she did? She was at the HMF? She
2: was. She was at the Hypergall Maintenance Facility. I'm sure most of your viewers know what most of this, or listeners know what most stuff is. Um, the acronyms are, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it was that work was coming to a close. I mean, they still had some more to do, but they were losing a lot of people down there, and they didn't, they didn't need nearly as many. We weren't flying anymore, and the almost pods and the RCS thrusters, the forward part, um, really the next things that happened to those was they were going to be torn apart um, and, and deserviced and saved and all that kind of stuff. So she thought about it. We thought about it. Kind of made a decision that, You know, she should go ahead and volunteer for the layoff. That would give her some time to do what she wanted to do and, you know, look for other work while I was still working, you know, in the hopes of having not having both of us be laid off at one time. So she went and got to do all kinds of things, went to several tweet-ups and got to travel around and and meet a a lot of people, different places, got to travel to Europe for three weeks. You know, had, had a good time, had about 15 months off, and then she got a job again, went back to work uh, in Orlando, uh, working for a Navy subcontractor. You know, it wasn't the greatest thing, but it was it was something because I knew that it was coming to the time and I was going to be gone. So, that's what had to happen. She got to spend some good time, you know, doing what she wanted to do. So, it was a a mutual thing that we had knowing that I would probably be in the same boat.
0: What was it like seeing some of your friends voluntarily or involuntarily laid off? You know, how how would how did that affect you? That had to be kind of a a tough time to, you know, still be working and still, you know, part of the program in some way and then seeing other people that you known for a while. What was that like?
2: It was hard. Uh, it was. It wasn't as hard. See some of the guys that, that volunteered. You know, they either had something else going on, or, or they were old enough, or they could, they could stretch retirement and be okay. And that wasn't as bad. They were doing what they wanted to do. When it came down to the involuntaries, you know, that was harder. One, you don't know. I always assumed that I was going to be laid off because I figured if I was laid off. Then ready for it if I wasn't then all the better you know watching people leave that you knew you know that I'd known for the last well, at that point 11 years and some of the guys that had worked out there for you know 30 the whole life of the program you know it was different seeing them and always wondering you know how what how they would think about if I was still there you know I hadn't been there that, nearly as long so how that would go and it was every time we'd get posters there was a kind of thing out there when someone would leave for whatever reason someone would go to the little shop at store and we'd get a poster of the shuttle or the pad or something like that and everyone would sign it and we'd get a frame for it and you know they'd have poster to take home hang off the wall with everyone's you know sign their a little note good luck and that kind of thing that was kind of a tradition you know, we go through a lot of those at the, the very end there, and seeing all that, you know, after the end of the end of the little get together we'd have at the, the last day, watch them drive away, and wonder if he'd ever, you know, will I ever see that person again? Will I ever, you know, how are they going to do? How, you know, hope that okay. Before the end, I I went around and I actually got everybody to put down their their phone number and email address and any kind of, any kind of social media thing they may have been into Facebook page or whatever. And I made a list, a co contact list of everyone on the pad or almost everyone so that to email to email to everybody so that everybody had names, phone numbers, email addresses to everyone else on the pad in hopes that we could, Stay in touch a little more, or if somebody needed something, we, you know. However it went, everyone had a way to contact somebody else. So it was kind of my way of trying to trying to keep everybody together a little bit because we were like a family out there.
0: I mean, it really was. So it was hard watching, you know, people slowly trickle away. At some point, you had to have made your last trip from Pad Thirty Nine A, leaving. Uh, did you Did you know it was the last time you'd be out there? Uh, or was it just sort of a you know one of your trips out ended up being the last one and you thought about it afterwards what was it like
2: no I was I knew it was going to be the last time
0: because it was about
2: well say a week or so before I actually left KSC or left the the shuttle transition uh, work that I was doing Um, I had gotten a job with SpaceX so I was taking my last two weeks there working shuttle, and we went out to look at artifacts that were still on Pad A. Um, artifacts being the White Room, um, the the beanie cap, like it's now like Pad B's is now in the uh, the Atlantis exhibit. Um, the there were several things on there that had been slated for new programs that no one really knew what they were. They were large chunks of the tower, and they didn't really understand what it would take to get them down if they needed them. So we went out, and and I knew that day was the last time, so I made sure I just stood there and and looked out at the view and at the ocean right there that I looked at so many times being up there. I would say it was the best office view in the world, uh, right there on the Atlantic Ocean seen the blue water stretch out forever, um, sit next to the space shuttles you you know i it was it was difficult I mean it was I knew it was the last time, and I just want to go out there one last time and just to just to be there, so you never know it's still standing. I may get to go back there again someday, but <laughs> You know, We'll see. At the time, I knew it was going to be it for at least quite a while, possibly the last time ever.
0: I think it was probably a year or so ago I heard Bob Cabana talking to a group. Uh, might have been when they moved Atlantis from the uh, VAB over to the visitor complex. And I think he was telling the the crowd that when he flew, he would tell his uh, crew, I guess when he was commander, to uh, take a minute, put your nose to the window, the orbiter, and while you're in flight, and, and make a memory. And I've thought of that uh, here and there. You and I are no astronauts, but when we get that special time to to think about something significant, uh, it to me it kind of uh, stores it in a special file that you feel like I'm always going to be able to, to pull this back up and remember something good. You mentioned SpaceX. That's a new job. What What are you doing now? What's your role with SpaceX? Yeah, right now I'm back to being a uh, launch pack technician again. And out there,
2: it's different than it was on shuttle. Shuttle, we had very defined roles, very defined shops. We, we took care of one or two or three different systems, and then we, we stuck to that. Um, out there, you could be doing anything from one day to the next, either working on hydraulics or some kind of nitrogen panel. You could be working, you know, liquid oxygen doing whatever, modifying something, rerunning tubing. We're building a new launch tower now, literally building it um, out there for the next generation Falcon nine rocket right now. So you get a dabble into almost, bro, well, say almost everything that they do. You might get a chance to do at one point, time or another. It just depends on who's doing what and what needs to be done. And if you're done doing what you were doing, you get moved on and something different. You know, it's it's and it's different in that you get to use your brain a lot more. I mean shuttle, everything was really laid out. Very cut and dried, very black and white. Out there it's not that way so much. And you really get to use your brain and think about and you get to have input into how things since we're building what's going out there right now, we get to have input into how how it's built. Hey, this would look better over here, or this would might work better, or you might get an issue here later on. Whatever it might be, you know, you have that input to be able to to, to use the experience that we you know, the guys have. And there's a lot of people, a lot of experience, and some guys with not much, but they're it's a really good group of people that really want to make sure things go right and are really willing to put forth some effort to make
0: sure it happens. What do you hope to be part of just in thinking about five years from now, 10 years, 15 years, or whatever? What would you like to be part of in the future?
2: I would love to be part of helping just the commercial space industry in this area get going. Um, It might sound strange, but the economic development part of the space industry has I've been thinking of that more and more the past several years. Uh, I'm getting more and more into the business side of aerospace than I have been. Now that I don't like the tech work, I do. I love being outside. I love building things. I always have since I was little. Building things, tearing it apart, seeing it work, putting it back together again. But the last several years, I've kind of gone a little more toward the business side, just with my interests. You know, I'd love to be able to do something like that. Um, Like, for instance, a Space type, type thing to help business grow in this area and bring the space industry more, you know, build it up. Because, I mean, if you think about it, we're in the very, very beginning of commercial space. I mean, the very, very beginning. And I really, really believe that if, if we as a people are going to go into space and explore it in any meaningful way, the commercial aspect has to be there. And it's going to be there first before we keep going further out. it's It's got to be there. So I really, I would love to be able to take part in that some way. Now, how? I haven't figured it out yet, but eventually I'd like to be able to figure that out and, and hopefully have have an effect there.
0: Well, I imagine a few years ago you wouldn't have really thought about working for SpaceX, and here you are today. And I, I think this kind of answers uh, pretty closely my next question already. I was wondering what you think will generate the most buzz or excitement. Do you think it will be commercial-type spaceflight or government efforts in, in that world?
2: That's a good one. Um I think commercial can do it if they do the right things. I think commercial can be, can get there. Um, But unfortunately, space flight still costs too much for a regular person to go into space, even a civil world flight. Now it's getting much better and it's getting better quickly, but we're not there yet. Think about the government side of it if we could get something going and stick with one idea, I think there could be some traction there also. But the problem is we can't stick with one idea. Are we going to Mars? Are we going to asteroid? Are we going to the moon? Are we bringing an asteroid here? All of which are could be exciting things. But we have to st- stick with one. Pick one and stick with it. And I think that's why people see or think government, I guess I could say NASA, but they feel like we're wasting money because we keep changing our mind. We go in one direction and then turn around and go some other way. And they're like, well, we're spending all this money. We're not seeing anything. As to which one can cause more buzz, I think at this point my answer would have to be commercial because I think we're going to do there's going to be more things flying in the space
0: quicker that way than it will be on the government side. No argument there. Everything you said, I agree with. I guess it's time we switch gears. Here, a week ago when I met you, we were at the Atlantis exhibit. Doors had opened for the first time that that day, Saturday, June twenty ninth, and. Uh, when I saw you right away, I thought, gosh, I wonder what Andy thinks about this. Because uh, you'd worked for so long out at the pad. You'd seen so many orbiters, been so much a part of, of what was happening. What did you think seeing Atlantis um, sitting there on display to the public for the first time?
2: I think she really looked good. I think you did a good job. Um, i had seen drawings and. In- heard about how it was going to be, you know, for the past year and a half, you know, concepts that they were thinking about, and and wasn't it sounded neat, but wasn't really sure how they were going to pull it off or how it was going to really work. But I think they did a really good job. I mean, it's no small thing to raise an orbiter off the ground like that, tilt it, and then have all the doors and the arm up and everything. It's no, it, it's a huge ordeal when you know how that has to happen normally. And know that none of those things can support their own weight in normal Earth gravity. You know they won't move. So it was a big. They had a huge undertaking to get it. it looked like that. I'm glad. Um, I think everyone should have the opportunity to be able to go and see. Really, all three orders, because they're going to be displayed in different ways, but. You should go and see it and see it up close. For the last thirty years, everyone has seen it either on the news, depending on where you're in a country. If you're, my family lives in Ohio, you saw a short, you know, fifteen second news clip, the shuttle launch and a little shot of it launching for you know five seconds, and that's what you saw. If you're down here, you know, obviously you heard about it a lot more. Getting up close to it was never an option. Even getting to go watch a launch up close, it was still three miles away. You couldn't appreciate what it was and how big it is. You know, no mock up is can compare to the real thing. So I was really impressed. I liked the way they did it. The showing in a flight, it's a it was a unique perspective on it. And I walked around for a while, just just looking, because I I would do that in the OPF bay, you just or the pad. I see back when we were talking about the you know those meaningful moments in your lives, I would take, I would make it a point every pad flow that I was on, I would stop at least one time during that flow, on whatever level of tower I was on, just for five minutes, and just look at it. Just to make myself stop and realize where I was at and what I was being allowed to do and participate in. So hopefully that that kind of thing, everyone who goes and visits Atlantis can kind of get a a part of that. They can stare at it, stand there and take pictures and, and really. And I hope they really stand there and look at it, just look at it for a while. To notice all the little small details, all the little cracks in the tile, all the little burn marks, you know, from reentry, all these little bitty things that you just don't see, you know, with the camera off from the pad. So I'm, I'm really impressed. I it's, I didn't get to watch the movie, the intro movie, unfortunately, uh, it was kind of packed, and we had a stroller with us, so I couldn't. We stuck in the back way through the gift shop. Um, but I do want to go back out there and view the the opening movie because apparently it's it's pretty amazing when they do the reveal, bring the door open. So I know you've seen it, so I'm sure you you know you're familiar. With what I'm talking
0: about, but I haven't been a chance to see that yet. So one of these days we're gonna go back out and actually watch it. It'll be worth the time. If you were uh, if you got a call or a message from somebody and they said, "Hey, we're we're coming to." To your Space Coast, and we want to go see Atlantis. How much time do you think we need? Any any guess? You know, from what you've seen, for somebody the first time to get up close to Atlantis, how much time do you think they'd want to spend uh, or reserve to to have for the Atlantis exhibit alone?
2: I would give it. Uh, this is going to sound small, but at least an hour. Uh, I think it probably should be more, a lot more than that but there's a lot to see out the visitor center. So you want to make sure you watch it and have a chance to stand there and then look at, like I said, there's all kinds of the, the exhibits and, and facts and things that maybe you didn't know about. that are all spread through the, the exhibit. You, people should go look those two and see how stuff was done. I know there's a neat little, uh, model of the, the mate, mate device with the shuttle carrier aircraft and how that worked. You know, how complex that looked. Um, this down on the bottom floor. Um, you should take a take time that you need to really stand there and be able to appreciate what it is. You know where it's been, what it's been doing. You know, and I I guess say it seems like a, a short period of time, but you know, people are pretty busy these days. I mean, if you can spend that kind of time. Slowly going through and reading everything, I think you'll be be satisfied, or at least for the time being. Uh, ticket to the thing is good for two days, so you can come back the next day and, and
0: look at it again if you didn't have enough. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think you could. Uh, I think you'd spend a considerable amount of time, and I didn't get to see everything. You're mentioning something with the mate Mate device that you know the model that shows that, and I'm thinking I don't remember that. And of course. Uh, when Sawyer and I uh, went through last weekend, at one point, you know, we're we're buzzing along to uh, to get into the first pre-show uh, part of the, uh, the exhibit. You know, we're walking past the quotes that are on the walls, and I know Jen has one, and I think she said that she spotted a second one. She's got a couple of quotes that are part of the exhibit, right? She does. She has
2: two. The, the first one is right before the doors when you go into the, the first movie. Right there, great big letters. It's her first quote. And then on the, once you get into the Atlantis exhibit itself, the very top level that you can walk to um, when you're facing the orbiter, and you should record this and play it back when you're there, whoever's listening, so you know right where this is at. You should, the very top level, facing the orbiter, toward the nose. There are displays of different facts all along the upper row facing the orbiter and all the way almost all the way to the left there's one about the uh the ohms rcs pods it looks like there's a big ship's wheel on it and right in the middle of that is her other quote so it's really neat to see her name twice in the exhibit you know i'm really proud of her for you know being able, or actually getting lucky enough to have the use their quotes in there. So it's it's pretty neat.
0: She is one creative woman. She's uh, an inspiration with the space program in her own right. And, you know, I, I'm going to have to go back because I don't remember seeing, I, I sort of saw the one, but I don't remember the second at all. And, uh, you know, that's probably the best advice is to save some time spend some time there you'll uh you'll see things you'll see things and then you'll see things again
2: you know i we didn't see everything either we didn't it was okay, obviously the first day it was pretty crowded the first day so there were a lot of things that they had the the cockpit the crew module mock-up where you could go sit and you know it's kind of split in half where you could walk through it and look and see all the switches and things and you know basically what it looked like inside there and yeah, you know, there were a lot of kids sitting inside there, which is really, I really like because, you know, those are the people that are going to be doing things in 10 years. So if you can get them in there sitting there looking, hey, this is like being in a spaceship. You know, getting their brains thinking that way. You know, you never know who you might inspire.
0: Good words, good words. Another uh, fun part of the experience that a lot of people have had there at uh, Cape Kennedy and the Visitor Complex for different events, the NASA socials, tweet-ups, whatnot, is uh, something that I think you've been in from day one, and that's the Endless Barbecue. Tell us about Endless Barbecue for those that don't know. Endless Barbecue
2: started as a joke of sorts. Um one of our friends, it was always a thing that, that his parties went on forever. So they were endless. And we just happened to call one of the barbecues we had in this barbecue thought it up. I think I think Jen's actually when I thought the name up. And we just call it that and there weren't a lot of people there. It just who was in town happened to see it. They were happened to see the, the show launched that time and so we'd kind of get together. We'd always try to go to when there'd be tweet ups and launches. We'd try to get together somewhere with people that were in town that we knew just to kind of get together to, to be able to talk. You know, you can talk over Twitter a lot, but you it's hard to say a lot. It's hard to really get to know anybody. So, you know, we always wanted to go somewhere where we could talk and, and kind of hang out and just be ourselves for a while. So the first one, there they were, I don't know, 30 people. And that one went on for several days, not consecutively, you know, running. But we'd have a party one night, and then we'd go back the next night for leftovers, what was left, and we'd, you know, a couple nights in a row, if, if need be, depending on what was left over. So we decided to, for the second one, the second one just happened to coincide with the final shuttle launch. So there were going to be a lot lot of people in town. So we went through, and we had corporate sponsors. We had logos made up and stickers and buttons and name badges for those of us that were like staff for, say, for the event. You know, we were making sure the drinks were all there. We had this. We made this into a real party, a real event. And nearest we can figure, that was probably. At least 250 people came to it, the second one. Probably more into this 1,800 square foot house and pool. <laughs> that it was just it was crazy, but everyone was there for a specific reason. We all go space, and so we we're there. And that people talked about not just space for the shuttle. All that was, uh, you know, main topic. But most of these people had known each other through Twitter for quite a while, but never met. So it was a long night of just talking and kind of just being together and, and just getting to know each other. So it was that was a big deal. So we decided to do it for every time there was a tweet-up. We did it for the Mars Science Laboratory. We did it for Curiosity. We did it for Juno. We had different places you know, it. the size never reached the, what the second one did. It dwindled after that because there were fewer people coming down. But every time we'd always get some people that were completely new. They would hear about it and they would come. And they, they'd never been to one before. They'd never been to a launch before. They really weren't even space fans before. But they came to our barbecue and got to meet these people and learn about things and, you know, get to talk to someone like, like you said in the intro that has done that, has been there. So you, you have a personal connection to some aspect of space now. So it makes it a little more real to you. I always had a good time. Even the time I was cooking the whole whole night long and slaving over the grill. I always had a good time.
0: I guess for people that want to follow endless barbecue, uh, keep an eye on Twitter, uh, You'll see you'll see mention of it, and there is a website, endless endlessbarbecue.com dot com e n d l e s s b b q dot com. So uh, they can uh, follow along and see what's uh, what's up there.
2: Yeah, so there are are fewer and far between now because we're we're getting away from some of the science missions. There, you know, some of the launches now are you know DoD payloads or uh, communication satellite. It's not near the you know like the Curiosity rover was. You know, where there was, here's this big, it's a big deal. It was really publicized and, it's a, you know, have people involved with it. So, but from time to time, we do have certain things that come up out right here. So keep an eye out. You never know when something might happen.
0: Well, you know, we all have hopes that there's going to be a lot of exciting uh, times in the years ahead. So, uh, there will be more this is kind of the point where we got to, I guess, wind it up and say goodbye. Uh, Andy, thanks for sharing a lot of your personal stories, uh, the, the early days, the middle days, and, and what's going on now. I think people will find it interesting to hear a little bit about Apache Man firsthand. And I, I very much appreciate talking with you because, like I said, we've hardly had time when we do bump into each other to say more than a few words and hi, how you doing? so hopefully we'll communicate a little bit extra to our listeners and generate some connections for the future.
2: Well, I hope so. Uh, Mark, thanks for having me on. And I know what you mean about not being able to have time. Usually there are so many people in town for launches or for events that it's really hard to sit down and, and talk to any one or two or three at length and really get to know them. And like I say, now, like last weekend, we wanted to do this last weekend, but you know, the baby's kind of in control now. She decides when we go and when we stay and <laughs> really what we do now. So that makes time even shorter um, for a little while here. So it's nice to be able to talk and, you know, hopefully share some things that people are interested in. And you know, I hope I did. And, you know,
0: I really appreciate you, uh, taking time to, uh, to listen and have me on. Well, thanks everybody for listening. That's it for this time. Keep in touch with all of us. Let us well know what said, you Mark. think. Well said, Mark. We definitely share want to your hear stories, from you, your stories, share your excitement, your opinions. That's what makes if you have any a good day even better we, for all of us. We like
1: hearing your stories as well, and we especially loved hearing Andy's today. So thank you very much, Andy, and thank you, Mark, for the interview. And of course, we thank you for listening. We'll be back very shortly to our regular news shows. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.